I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. So this is our second to last episode in season one, and I really like to think that we save one of the best for last. It also happens to be very timely given the release of a second season of a certain Lucasfilm series, which made Baby Yoda so popular last year. (laughs) Yeah, Baby Yoda. Someone out there just got really excited and someone else is cringing. (laughs) You may be wondering, how does Baby Yoda connect to architecture? Well, on today's episode, we're going to continue our running series dedicated to architecture and so far we've spoken with an entrepreneur of startup and an entrepreneur doing social impact work. Today's episode, we're expanding the conversation to understand how architecture relates to film and television. We were incredibly lucky to have today's guest join us, who has a powerful resume and portfolio of work that bridges the gap between those two worlds. Rebecca Bookbinder is an art director working in film and television. She has collaborated on notable productions including The Mandalorian, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker, and The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. A graduate of my alma mater at SciArc with a Master of Architecture, Rebecca's background in architecture and fascination with the ephemeral has led her into the world of filmmaking and ultimately has informed a career in set design and world building. Her work in television and film transports audiences into imaginary worlds for people to experience. She believes her career has been a balance of taking risks and serendipitous moments that led her to where she was meant to be. You can see more of Rebecca's work on October 30th when season two of The Mandalorian airs. Let's cut to the interview. So Rebecca, you're an art director um, who has worked on Dark Crystal and Rise of Skywalker, which I think is really, really exciting. Those are two titles that our audience is very familiar with. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about the role of art director in film and What would somebody who's seen those films be able to see of your work? Well, where we should start is the designer, uh, production designer. And sometimes the role is one and the same. It could be a small uh, production. And then you have the art director is the same thing as the production designer. But all of the jobs that I've worked on so far, you know, they've had their designated production designer and then the art director underneath. So the production designers in charge of overseeing the entire look of the of the film or the show and the art director is more concerned with all the fine finer details and becomes a liaison between the production designer and the construction team so we become project managers in that sense i think there's a really unique parallel that we can draw between the fact that especially in larger firms, not everyone's a designer, right? So there's larger firms that have the one or two or three people that actually does, or even smaller firms that does the majority of the design. And then you also have your project managers that's kind of executing against that design. Right. 
So when we think of like everything that we are product managing is our various different consultants, acoustics, lighting, HVAC, um, you know, there might even be carpentry in there. Are you coordinating similar efforts then as an art director, bringing the vision of the vision to life? Exactly. I mean, in architecture, you have systems, but in film, it's more like all of the departments that contribute to the shot itself are the systems. You have like costumes, you have special effects, you have construction, you have um, lighting and rigging and, and all of that are the li- living, breathing systems of, of this, of the set. Yeah. And you were, when we were talking and preparing for this episode, you actually mentioned a really interesting point to me was like, you need to make sure an actor is not going to trip over their whatever elaborate costume they have to right. as they're walking through the environment. So like, I don't know, that might be similar to like, to ADA, or I can think of, you know, in the kitchen, we have these, we have these certain dish carts that we always need to accommodate for, but i never think about like how that's played out, like, at the film level. So that's, that's really interesting to me. To not think about ADA anymore. It was quite liberating. <laughs> but right, yeah, the it's, rules are quite different in film. Right. That being said, you know, we still face some conditions that we have to account for that are similar to architecture. Like, you know, if you're making an awning in a location where tornadoes are prone, you have to get an engineer and you have to make it structurally stable just in case something happens. But ours gets torn down, you know, five minutes later. But it also means it probably comes together a lot faster, right? Like one of my things that I always struggled with in architecture was that it's going to take me four or five years from conception to end to see one of my, like to see anything I worked on come together. So, so I, I imagine things are coming together a lot faster too, even though they're being taken down pretty fast. And that's, and that's ultimately why I, I didn't want to go into architecture. One, because I don't have the patience whatsoever. And I recognize that pretty early on in life. And two, I'm obsessed with the ephemeral, right? Like, so being able to iterate really fast and to see what works, what doesn't work. So uh, the first time that I worked on a project, it was Dark Crystal. And they had me design one of the columns based off of a Brian Froud design. Who Brian Froud was the original designer for the fairies and for all of the architecture, the Gothic architecture. And I designed something in, in Maya and 3D printed it, handed it to the sculptor, and within eight hours, he had something blocked out already. And this was a column that was like nine feet tall. And I got this high. I don't know, like I, I. Yeah, instant gratification. Oh, completely. And, you know, us being millennials, that's, you know, kind of what we're all about. So, yeah, I knew this is where I wanted to be. I mean, there was something on um, Rise of Skywalker that the director had asked for last minute. Like, it was a whole set that he asked for it, but then he realized last minute that it was going to be a li- play a larger role. So we had to put some more, eff- you know, more details into it. And, and let's be realistic. We've all had clients that at the very right. last minute have changed their minds. So. Right, which, which is understandable. You know, you don't it's, understand. It's a, it's a human. Exactly. And I had to design a hatch. I was hel- helping an art director and I was a set designer for it. 
and she asked me to make a hatch. So I designed a prelim, drew up a prelim, and then sent it to her. And then I kept working it because you do usually a preliminary drawing and then you do a release drawing. And usually you never want to work off of a preliminary just to give them a heads up. Hey, this is what's coming your way. This is, you can account for the material that needs to be ordered and you can figure out any of the engineering that needs to be accounted for. But, you know, I sent that preliminary and I kept, you know, tweaking the design and then sent it to her, I think like two hours later. And then she just sent me a picture back with, you know, the, the hash already built. And I was like, okay, well, that was, that was pointless. But, you know, it's just that, it's that super fast iteration. You know, and this hatch was not a small hatch. It was like, uh, I want to say five by three or something, you know? Yeah, that's crazy. Like, I can't, I don't know. I have a, like, we can't even conceive of a bathroom. (laughs) Or the smallest, the smallest room in your house, right? Like, like, yeah, it would put me that long to put like a a decent door schedule together, I think. Oh, God, schedules. (laughs) You were telling us also that on a, on an average film, you might have up to 300 different sets included in that film. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, not to brag, but no, I'm really <laughs> not bragging. Um, the other projects that I've worked on, it's, you know, it's up to 300. But that being said, some of them become, um, you use the same set, but you, they call it revamping. So you change a couple elements and uh, it becomes a whole new set. That that's interesting too, because when you talk about like the need to think in systems, I think that's like a, a different way to think in systems too, right? Like I don't know, it's it's like it's a, it's a very temporal use of adaptive reuse, right? Um, mm-hmm. And how it's how it's applied to the physical environment. So we kind of just dived head first into what you do, and you alluded to very slightly about kind of why you didn't want to go into traditional practice in particular because of the timeline. Can you kind of walk us through how you actually got into film in the first place? So um, I got my bachelor's degree in Texas in a town, in a town, in a city called San Antonio. And um, I went to study abroad in Spain. And while I was doing study abroad in Spain, I started seeing people, um, designing for like a a space hotel and I was like wait you know there isn't just high-end residential from there like my my uh, vision of what architecture is expanded and then I learned about a school called SciArc and I applied and I got in and it, it was nothing but like very avant-garde architectural approach to being an architectural pedagogy. And I learned so many programs and the way that they approached architecture was a very, the image became forefront at that school. And I was all about that. And I became very in tune with that. And I realized there's probably a reason for that. And I didn't want to just become somebody that renders shots for an architecture firm and my mentor at the time who is the director of of SciArc now he was my mentor for thesis Hernan Diaz Alonso and I I told him look Hernan I don't want to 
for my thesis. I didn't want to do just your typical plans and sections and make a model of it and stand there in front of a couple boards. And he said that, okay, so make your own reality. Make, uh, make, don't do a building, make multiple buildings and do an animation then. So I did. And one of his big things, you know, in architecture school, you have crits, right? Yeah. And his big thing was, if you want to be a big dog, you got to play with the big dogs, right? He was it sounded really cheesy. But for our jurors, he would invite like Frank Gehry, Tom Main, Greg Lynn, you know, all of the biggest names in architecture at the time. And we would have to, I mean, just the fact that we got to be in the same room as these people, stand in front of these people, like they had to stare at us. You know, they were subjected to stare at us for you know, 20 minutes, that was enough to make you feel like you could be in the same room than anybody, you know? So wait, are you telling me that you had a design pen up in school with Tom Main? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, he, okay. <laughs> and it's great because, you know, every time like I, I don't really do urban projects. Uh, and he really loves to talk about urban projects. So it's Oh, and he ripped me apart on my thesis. It was so funny. It's not even that he ripped me apart. He set me up. He was the first person to ask a question on my thesis. And it set the tone and it totally screwed me over. Because he was like, is this an intellectual project or an emotional project? You're like, like, first off, this isn't even architecture. Just to be clear. (laughs) This is in my imagination. It was so funny because you see, like, it was like 12 jurors all really respected in their own right and tom main starts it off as is this an intellectual project or a emotional and i was like (laughs) emotional then i have nothing to say you know like they didn't know how to critique it right really interesting to see and to reflect on (laughs) yeah and that is the starting point of like your career really Mm -hmm. i mean even though i know i feel the same way when i look back at old stuff i'm like oh but it, it's so meaningful because it's like the, you know, building blocks of like what propels you forward into the direction that you start going when you invest in stuff like that. Right. So in that regard, you shared with us that Alex McDowell played a really important role in helping you grow into your career in film. And he became your mentor and your advocate. And so why don't you tell us about when you first met him and then becoming his mentee and and pursuing a career that was directly related to a lot of the work he was doing. Right. So knowing that I really wanted to work with him after, I went to one of Syrak's famous lectures that they have, uh, and he happened to be there. This is like maybe, you know, a month after I graduated. And I went up to him and told him I was really interested in the work that he did. At that time, I was like, oh, I want to become a production designer, not knowing like the, the, the new avenue he had taken. And he kind of laughed. He said, oh, really? And uh, he said, well, send me your more, your portfolio. I sent him my portfolio and he sends this, you know, really lovely critical review on my, on my thesis. And uh, I ended up, you know, within a week working for him. And it was interesting because, you know, looking back at it now, my first role with him was as a low-end, I guess, uh, concept artist. I really could never call myself a concept artist. 
but I was making these collages for him. And I was like, you know, churning them out, spitting, spitting them out because he, he just wanted to see what these worlds that he was envisioning would look like. He even took me up to San Francisco on a trip because they were going to pitch this idea at a, at the headquarters of a, of a company. And between the breaks of the meeting, he would come and tell me, you know, let's, let's do a collage, you know, showing this. So, so like I'd get 15 minutes to do a collage to, you know, visualize these things that he wanted to portray with the client. And it was really interesting. It pushed me to my, my core, but I feel like I should probably go back to what he does now, which is not, he's not working film anymore. What he does now is that he speculates futures for companies to see where these companies can start to take their their products and uh, the possible places that it can go. And he likes to do this through one world building, but also with a, a narrative attached to it because he feels that storytelling is the most basic way that we can communicate as humans and uh, it became a, quite a powerful and interesting way to to realize all these things that I had learned at SciArc, how I can apply this to a field outside of architecture. World building. Can you, I, I think a lot of our listeners will know what that means, but can you explain it for those who may not know what that means? world building is uh, thinking about all of the elements that make this certain thing possible, right? Thinking about the culture, thinking about the language, thinking about the science that creates that scene or set. But I've seen it done so many different ways with each designer or approached with so many different designers. Like Alex McDowell, he approaches designing in a sense that the design is what builds narrative. It's what, it's what guides the narrative, right? Take Minority Report, for example. Minority Report, he was hired on the same day as a script writer. And Stephen wanted him to, uh, you know, you have the book that it was based off of, which gave you these multiple parameters. But as far as the story goes and how they were going to depict that within the movie, that wasn't determined yet. So he started with the same day as a script supervisor. He had these parameters. And of course, they were guided by, by uh, Spielberg. But he got a group of scientists, you know, he calls them domain experts from, you know, MIT or wherever, and started designing what would the futuristic transportation be within a city. And then he came up with these autonomous vehicles that could go vertically and horizontally and that in turn inspired the chasing that happens within the movie wow that's really cool right so and also like superman in the story of man of steel originally superman gets his suit from you know his earth parents as a baby in man of steel they shifted that and made it to where he got it from the planet that he's from. And Alex exposed this huge flaw in that the suit has a big S and in, you know, Kryptonian language, you know, what is Kryptonian language to justify having that S? 
so he hired on a language um, expert, somebody who developed Kryptonian language to rationalize why it has this S on it, you know, and that's his way of approaching uh, world building and design in general. And then you have Rick Carter, it's more um, narrative designs, the design, and he works very close with the director. And he, he never becomes in love with the design in case the, he needs to change it for whatever vision the director needs the, the story to go in and the design ultimately to go in. Mm-hmm. The designer that I'm working with right now, Andrew L. Jones, he is a visual storyteller, right? So he'll take, you know, a set, figure out how to enrich those sets with world building. You know, if it's a college student storm, he's not going to pick the finishes, bunk beds, and let set deck do the rest. He's going to really ask himself, what are their needs? What are their daily activities? And let that dictate, you know, these, you know, the way that this, that set gets set up and designed and all their approaches are super valid. And, and I hope to one day have an approach of my own. That's a really good point. No, I'm, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Cause I mean, I guess that's what we all aspire to do as designers is to figure out our, our voice in this work. It took me all of architectural education to realize all that I was ever being taught are different processes, you know, and then you need to find out which process works for you. And it's kind of like that. It's exactly like that. Right. So after doing that collage, that the project was maybe only, you know, three weeks long. And from there, he kept bringing me on from project to project. And with each project, my role changed and I got to see all the ways that I can contribute to his definition of world building and all the projects that he got to do. So anywhere from 3D modeling to script writing to taking clients out to dinner to, you know, it was to being his secretary. It was really interesting to see what I was capable of. And it was kind of like this crash course. No, but I think it's also like indicative of like when you think about project managers too, Mm -hmm. right? And kind of all the things that they have to go between and everything. You have to have a a little bit of understanding of how each role is contributing to the bigger piece. So, so for me, I think it sounds like you are getting a lesson in like what all those different various different roles are and how it could build into into like one cohesive narrative or 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 story or world. You know, and how that how that later transitions to to something else, right? So, so I can see how Alex could do something like he's he's known for his work in Minority Report, but also on the flip side, be working with these companies um, doing doing world building for them. You know, so it sounds like he was like you know mentoring you and giving you exposure to all these different factors of film and roles. When was the point that you guys ended up going to London? I had heard that he was starting to take these meetings at the Disney headquarters in um, Burbank. And I kind of got wind of what he was going to go do and where he was going to go. And I told him that I wasn't done working with him. Right. 
And he's like, I lo- I'd love to take you, but it's London and, you know, they're not going to sponsor you to be over there. So, you know, you would need a, a passport. And he goes on to saying, like, you know, you should really think about if you're really serious about going into film, you should just move to London. Right. And I told him, well, you know, what if I did have a passport, which I do. He's like, well, then you're coming with me. So I went to London with him, not knowing anybody. And that's where I worked on Rise of Skywalker, because they usually do all the, the recent films in London. And I was a set designer, basically my very first big job in the industry. And that lasted about two years. That's very cool. Um just because people are going to be interested in, can you tell us maybe about one or two of the sets that you ended up doing for Rise of Skywalker? One set that I did was the Imperial Hangar, where Ray jumps onto the Falcon at the end or at the edge of the of the hangar. And then one set that I set designed, purely set designed for, was there's this in the Death Star. She's Climbing up a uh, a column. And I was going to say that's a pretty precarious column. Yeah, no, and it's actually what ended up on the poster. So the set that I set designed for ended up on the poster of Rise of Skywalker, nice. the one where they're both <laughs> dueling. Although the design was already kind of sketched out before, it was just figuring out all the details of the builds and, and really nailing down the look and the feel of it. So when you told Evelyn and I this the first time, we both immediately went back and rewatched Rise of Skywalker because we wanted to go see the Imperial Hangar and look at it. And it's gorgeous. I mean, the shot is so pretty because the the floor is like reflective and there's these really gorgeous like tall lighting fixtures in the background and they're reflecting off that floor so it makes the space feel really powerful and big and important and and then of course you have the characters in the scene the actors i can imagine that that was a lot of fun trying to create that environment is there anything specific that you can share with us about what inspired the direction of that the initial inspiration, uh, and this is all driven by the fabulous production designer. Uh, it was actually co-designed by Rick Carter and Kevin Jenkins. But Kevin Jenkins had a little bit more to do with this particular set. And he was inspired by the hangar in Return of the Jedi, you know, where, where Palpatine has his uh, Lambda shuttle and he's got his troopers around and you have these really big kind of columns that are, that are wrapping the, the perimeter of the room. And then from there, it was funny because we were, we were also taking that and doing a hybrid kind of marrying up what they did the hangar for force awakens and doing this hybrid. And, and from there, like it was funny because I was, I was doing all these iterations and then all these elements by themselves started becoming very, having this feminist nature, I guess, like the columns that are running around the perimeter of the room with like, you know, we started calling them kinky boots because they kind of just looked like <laughs> boots with high heels on them. And uh, the doorway in the corner of the room kind of looks like, you know, 
female reproductive part with details that look like fallopian tubes coming around it. So that was interesting, like how subconsciously maybe the fact that I'm a female kind of came through. I don't know. It was totally subconscious. It was not intentional. It did get to a point where I was like, okay, well, I have a lot of time with this. I might as well do one or two things that become intentional after I saw that pattern. But it was a, an interesting evolution to approach that set. For the most part, a lot, the majority of the students that go into architecture really want, in whatever way it is, they kind of want to make their, their mark on the world. They always kind of envision themselves coming out as a designer. And I think in truth, like so much of the work that we do only gets seen either in the pictures that show up because it's in a magazine or that it's won an award somewhere. And even then, only other architects are looking at architects' work or, or, or people are actually like, it's, it's well enough that people are actually, it's a destination that calls people to come and visit and check it out. You talked a little bit about like your joy and how quick iteration in film is. But I think film, as you said, because storytelling is such a powerful tool, I almost think that film reaches so many more people. You know, in a way, you have the ability to influence a lot more people than the average architect. Yeah. And that was a big part of, of going into film is that I felt like it was more accessible than doing architecture, you know? Also, the fact that you just sit in a room and do bathroom details, you know, that, that didn't excite me at all. So I looked at it like people are more aware of or exposed to the house in Fight Club than they are of a Tadao Ondo building, you know? And that showed me that there's so much more potential in film to make any kind of statement or touch people or or get emotion from people right right as well as having an influence on on culture itself if you look at minority report and what alex did for that you know his holographic hand gesture interface that inspired a company to actually create that and you see a lot of people starting to think of the future integrating that kind of technology with it and it's that's that to me is so interesting that it has that kind of potential rather than doing a bathroom detail with a building that ultimately might or might not be built four years from now and what also was interesting to me in the story that you were saying was that the tools that you're using are more so like I feel like when we leave architecture school we like learn Revit I learned I went to Cyric right I did the whole Maya um, 3D printing wasn't quite a thing because I was a little older than you. <laughs> but like, I, we learn all of these exciting tools in school and their applications, and then we go into practice and it's all CAD and Revit. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like you've gotten to continue to use those tools in your everyday world. So like, how do you think, talk to us about not only the tools that kind of translate into what you do every day, but also any other skills given that architecture background helps you do what you do today? Working within constraints and problem solving, I would say is, is probably the biggest one. It really, uh, I think constraints can also lead to better design because if somebody goes, you know, sky's the limit, 
that's the best way to cripple somebody, you know, and I believe that sometimes with, with these parameters, with these constraints, you know, whether it be budgetary or whatever, a lot of these things wouldn't happen. These, these fortunate things, these happy accidents wouldn't, or not even happy accidents, but uh, some designs wouldn't come into place if it wasn't for them. And I was at SciArc and they taught us how to do things like photogrammetry. It's kind of like whenever you're in um, elementary and you're taking a math course or even high school and taking a math course and you're like, how will this ever help me with my future? Turned out, I feel like it's more applicable to film than it is for architecture because, you know, one of my very first assignments was to do photogrammetry on a miniature tree that the sculptor had made so that we can take it into ZBrush and that we can manipulate it how the director wanted certain texture in certain places. So I found that to be all those skills that I had learned at SciArc are were almost more applicable to film than they were to architecture. As well as I always told myself that I would never learn Revit. I, I did end up learning Revit, but I <laughs> never put that on my resume or ever let anybody know that I, that I knew it because then you just become pigeonholed, <laughs> right? And that just, I always told myself growing up that the goal is to wake up excited and happy to do what you do every day and I've been lucky enough to be quite honest with myself so I knew that Revit didn't make me happy. I'm really glad you shared that because I had the opposite experience. I thought okay they want us to know AutoCAD they want us to know Revit. I was oblivious to the things that made me happy for a while and I learned those programs thinking these are hireable skills. So if I learn these, then I'll get a job. And of course, you know, it was in the recession. So it was of that time when everybody was desperate to get a job. But it, honestly, it really didn't make me happy. Like I did, I don't like working in Revit. I just don't, I don't like that kind of drafting tediousness. It's, it's not stimulating to me. And so I just find it really refreshing that you knew out of the gate that you you were looking for things that made you happy because not everyone knows how to do that. It took me a long time to understand that and to come to terms with that for myself. And that's why I ended up meandering off my own path from architecture. But it sounds like you were you already knew that about your journey early on. Yeah, it was great to go on my journey and take these skills, you know, the ones that I really liked. And I didn't know that I was going into film whenever I was going through architecture. But in the end, realizing that all of these tools and software and even the work ethic that I had gained from architecture school, how it really applied to, to working in film. Um, so how has working in film made you look at architecture differently? I haven't been in film long enough. But one big thing that I see, you know, my friends that are art directors going through is, you know, you see usually on a, you know, shows or films, you use locations, like a big part of an art director's job or a designer's job are, is using locations to transform as a set, right? If you watched the last Westworld and you see city science or you see Beau Phil's 
studio, his, his architecture firm, and they transform it into, you know, an office or a house or a lot of stuff is um, period pieces. So you take backdrops of LA and integrate these elements to make it like 1930s. And it makes you look at the world or at the built environment a little bit more malleable. And it's a really interesting thing because then you start to look at all these details, right? Oh, those mullions are made out of wood. That means it must have been, you know, 1940s or, you know, you become hyper-focused and more aware of the background and the context of, of the built environment around you, but also all the potential that can be, which is exciting. It's exciting when you, when you walk down the street. I have been, in a different sense, not exposed to that as much because I've worked on projects that you build from the ground up rather than altering locations to fit the set. You know, architects, even even the older leaders, like architects want to be considered the master builders. But I feel like we've gotten so far away from actually being craftsmen. And at some point, because of the type of work that you're doing, because because you don't have to go through the same building department, like like you are you are crafting things and you're much like what you're bringing together is so much more hands on. And I, I feel like what you're doing at a smaller scale is like what architects wish they were able to do with their clients every day. It's so interesting. It's so interesting to working with the construction team and the um, prop makers, as they call them, because the craftsmanship that I get to experience every day and seeing like, you know, these little tips that they've, that they learned along in their trade and their, in their journey and the visual output that comes about all of this. And it's, I don't know, it's just, I call it magic. Every time like the designer on the show that I'm working on right now sends me a picture and it's like, wow, this is a really nice part of the set. And I'm like, yep. And I'll you know say that certain prop makers name and say, you know, they gave, they put their magic on it. And it's, it's really interesting to, to experience that every day and to understand how things come together. So if somebody's interested in pursuing a similar path that you've done, if, I, if I'm in my fourth or fifth year at architecture school, what, what advice would you give to somebody coming out of school if they're interested in following in your footsteps? I mean, first, be honest with yourself. Figure out what interests you. And if that is film and entertainment, then that's great. You know, Hernan had, had all set us down and told us to find somebody that you admire and research their path and see what it took them. Look at the different types of roles within the film industry, you know, whether that be VFX within the art departments or even sculpting, whatever it might be. And then start to research on people that have taken that similar path and people that you might want to work with. And I would say put together a portfolio that you think shows all the skills that might be applicable to that certain field. You know, be bold, be brave. It sounds cheesy, but with high risk comes high reward. It was interesting for me that we started this conversation about architecture and and somebody who has clearly stepped off of the traditional path so early in her career. But she also is so, I think, intrinsically, deeply connected back to architecture in a way. 
um, which I thought was a unique perspective that somebody who's gone on the architecture and path made, like their connection back to practice. Right. I really enjoyed talking to Rebecca because I just love that she's she always knew that she wanted to do something different. And what was very compelling in hearing her story was that she never let the constraints of architecture and what the career in becoming an architect uh, is, like, define her path. She always knew that she was going to be pursuing a path that was a little bit different. And um, I think she leaned into it really clearly and what I like, I mean, we always knew in this season that we wanted to talk about what it looked like when you uh, take an education in architecture and apply it into doing something a little bit adjacent to what traditional architecture is. And I think Rebecca is a really great example. Her career definitely illustrates using an architectural education and expanding that idea of architecture and versus walking away from it entirely. Yeah, And it was kind of astonishing to me that even after her experience, she still went on to get her MARC at SciArc, even though I feel in between her BARC and her MARC, she made this conclusion that the traditional path was not where she wanted to go. Um, But then she used her education at SciArc and, and, you know, through some prodding from Ernan was able to come out with a portfolio that actually positioned her for the next steps with with Alex and um, this I- idea of world building, right? Which I came out of SciArc too, and I my portfolio I don't think could could have spoken to that or positioned me so well for that. But um, that she was able to even leverage her time in school to begin to craft that alternative path that was really unique for me. I agree. I think that's a really important lesson that if, especially for any of our listeners that might still be in school, like if there's something that you want to do, use your education to explore it, you know, learn while you're in school and try to research it as much as you can so you can expand your viewpoint into that world. Yeah, another attribute that I really appreciate and I find really refreshing from Rebecca, uh, especially as a female, is that I feel like she's such a hustler when it comes to her career, right? She approached, Alex wasn't even talking, but she knew enough to know who she wanted to work with in the industry and to go up to Alex, who was, who was listening as a, you know, a standard, like a, a bystander by all means and say, I want to work with you. I read this article about you and, and to get her final thesis in front of him as a result of that meeting. And then you know, when Alex, you know, was ready to say, I appreciate all the work you've done for me, but my path is taking me to London, kind of her wherewithal and her like never giving up her constant hustle of, well, I'm not done working with you and I have a passport. So I'm going with you to London. I really appreciated that type of hustle coming out of not only somebody from architecture, but like from from a female perspective. Definitely. I mean, I think she is a very strong individual and it was very clear in listening to her that, that she goes after her goals. But even more so, I think it speaks to this idea of the value of mentorship and the, the value of having someone that's really in your corner and sees the potential and what you're capable of. Like for him to understand that her training in architecture 
could so easily adapt to the work that they were doing and enhance even she talked about collage making and, you know, starting to like quickly craft these ideas heading into meetings. I mean, he really saw the value in that. And, and I think it's really cool to hear a success story about someone who took someone right out of school and helped them grow into their career to become so successful. Yeah. I mean, for me, I guess one of the biggest takeaways then from hearing Rebecca's stories for our listener is we've talked a lot about entrepreneurship in general, right? Like the the idea that we hope architects think more entrepreneurially about their business practice, their operations, their their marketing, business development, the the types of services they're offering. For me, Rebecca was a, a great case study in how to be more entrepreneurial about your career and really treat your career as your own sole proprietor business and do what you need to do to expand it uh, and to make it your own and to turn it into something that you love to get up and go to work for every day. A lot, there's been some interesting surveys uh, coming out about the people that are happiest in their career now. And when you look at um, how they got to the role that they are now, in now, a lot of them have said that they've essentially created their role for them, like their their role was actually created for them at the organizations they work with. In many ways, I feel like Rebecca, even though she's kind of fallen, she's found this unique career path in entertainment. And there is kind of a career ladder that she talked us through about the entertainment industry, that like the roles that she had leading into that were all created for her because she was very entrepreneurial. She hustled and she got her like she got in front of the right people at the right time and was also prepared to share with them kind of her skills. Yeah. And I want to expand on that because when we say entrepreneurial in this context, when we're talking about a career, um, we don't necessarily mean it in the going to start your own business sense. What we're talking about is about, again, this fearlessness this mentality towards risk taking, essentially like a willingness to look for other alternative options out there. And Rebecca, I guess she just, it resonates so much with me. And I know you too, Evelyn, that she's just someone that doesn't let the rules define her path. And I can say from personal experience that when I have allowed the path to define my my trajectory, it's been the hardest on me as an individual. But when I listen to myself, and I heard Rebecca say this also, when she's listened to herself and followed that inner voice that tells you like where you feel like you're supposed to be going and then you pursue it, I promise it just really it, – it, it's a freeing experience and it, and it leads you to the place that you're meant to go. Yeah. We're asking our listeners then to adopt the mindset of an entrepreneur as related to your career and own personal development. Exactly. The other last takeaway too for me is that I think Rebecca, when she started on her career path, she had and she still has a deep love and appreciation for what architecture as an art is able to do and how how space creates presence and creates feelings and how it resonates and impacts people's lives. And, you know, there's people that would argue that I, you know, in spite of my license, what I do, I'm not an architect. I think there is people that would equally argue that 
what Rebecca is doing doesn't make her an architect, but her argument that what she does like on a daily basis touches more of the public than the buildings that the star architects build that most people only see in magazines. I think that really resonated with me. And for me, she's actually making a much bigger impact in non-star architect fashion by what she she is doing and how she's delivering and, and the people that see her work. So I would also say that even as even if you find yourself away from the traditional path, it doesn't have to be for lack of love for what brought you originally to architecture, that there are paths out there for those who love the profession and love that feeling of change that new graduates have when you come and graduate into the world. There is the ability to create that change in different scales and in other formats out there for you. I so wholeheartedly agree, Evelyn. And I think you and I just wanted to send a little love letter out to anyone out there who feels like they fit into that category because uh, we do too. And we, we think that the profession should be bigger and not exclude people. Um, So on that note, Evelyn, next week is our season finale. Yeah, next week, listeners, is our season finale, so please feel free to tune in. It's it's going to be of a little bit of a different format. It's What we're doing is called an AMA or an Ask Me Anything, which is actually pretty common in the tech world, but less common in the architecture world. I feel like there's a few architecture firms that are doing at least what they're called office hours now, where anyone can ask them the leadership anything so anyways tune in for our season finale next week where we respond to questions solicited to us by our listeners and if you have a question for us and it doesn't matter what topic it is it is called ask me anything please feel free to email me directly at evelyn at practice of it's evelyn at practice of architecture all one word dot com see you next week see you next week Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Visit us at practicedisrupted.com to find out more about future episodes and the changing nature of practice. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can learn more about other podcasts in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more content like this, you can help us by leaving a rating, review, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing about. Thanks for listening and see you next week.